Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Everyone needs a healthy level of fat. So so the conversation needs to shift from get rid of fat at all costs, fat is bad, to we need to maintain a healthy level of fat and healthy fat, right? A healthy distribution. So you want fat in healthy deposits and you want a, a nice normal amount of it. That doesn't mean obesity is okay either because that has a whole bunch of other health consequences. So actually too little fat or too much fat is not healthy. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Sylvia Tara all about the internal and external forces that govern fat, how we gain fat, how we lose fat, why your body refuses to let go of fat, and how you navigate the confusing diet and fitness world that is constantly telling you It's all about calorie balance. Now, it's not that I don't believe in calories. Obviously, they exist as a form of energy, but it's certainly not the most important factor when it comes to weight control for a lot of people. And for too long, people who have failed on diets find themselves on this downward spiral of negative emotions and feel that they don't have anything other to blame than poor willpower. But today, we're going to explain why that's not necessarily the case. Dr. Sylvia Tara has a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She's a biochemist. She was driven to get to the bottom of fats mysteries and the reasons why it vexes us because of her own struggles with weight and dieting. And her book, The Secret Life of Fat, frames our conversation today. And we largely speak about how gender, genes, bugs, and even viruses can determine whether one person absorbs 120 calories and another can absorb 80 calories from the same bowl of cereal labeled as 100. It sounds impossible, but it's true. We discussed the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss and what to do to remove stuff and fat. And stick around to the end of the podcast where I summarize the main tips that can help you live a healthier life that balances an appreciation for why fat shouldn't necessarily be demonized totally and how to live more metabolically healthier. Now, the topic of weight loss might make some people feel uncomfortable. So we do our best to make our conversations compassionate and approachable, but please exercise caution if you feel you might be triggered by these topics. Also, check out the Doctor's Kitchen Eat, Read, Watch newsletter. You can find it at thedoctorskitchen.com. I give you a delicious recipe every single week, plus something to read, watch, or listen to that will help you lead a healthier, happier life. On to the podcast.
Before we actually get into it, um, so I, I work as a doctor still clinically. Uh, obviously, I'm interested in nutritional medicine and, uh, and everything else in that arena. But I'm really interested in how people come to um, study and uh, be, be you know, passionate about the nutrition area. And your background is fascinating because you're a scientist, you know, trained as a biochemist, PhD, but you've also got an MBA from Wharton. You used to work for McKinsey and Company. Like, t- tell us a bit about you as a person and, and, and your history uh, in your career. Yeah, so I mean, we, I guess my family was always kind of academically oriented, if you will, right? Kind of, you know, high achievers. My dad had gone to Harvard. He was a chemist as well. Um, and so he was a PhD in chemistry too. And um, I guess I was just interested in it. I always loved the science of it. I thought I would be a doctor for a while until I, you know, realized how much training <laughs> the, the decade of residency time was needed. And I thought, no, got to get, get to work. So I was always interested in it from the very um, beginning. And uh, I was interested then in the business side of it, too, which is why, you know, the MBA in McKinsey. And I've always worked with biotechnology. I've worked in drug development, uh, diagnostics as well. And so but at the same time, I had my own battles with fats. Right. And um, I gained very easily. And I, I went on a number of diets and they didn't work the way they did for other people. Sometimes I'd even gain weight on a diet. They had me eating much more than I usually eat. And there was that philosophy for a while, if you remember about you have to eat more to burn calories, otherwise you slow your metabolism and it just didn't work. And I was about to go on another diet, try another, um, you know, form of dieting. And I thought, why am I constantly following someone else's advice? I said, there's something amiss with my body. It's gaining weight fast. It's losing it very slowly. I have to figure out what this is. And I remember when I was starting my PhD program, someone told me that um, unless you have a burning question, don't go into research, right? Because you won't like it. And uh, maybe that's one of the reasons I didn't. I didn't go into research as a career because, uh, you know, I I didn't have a burning question. But I think when it came to my own body and what's going on and why can't I lose weight, I had this burning, burning question of what is going on. And so it propelled me for five years then to research fat. You know, what is fat? How do we lose it? What were all the components involved in gaining and losing fat? And I started learning things that were just really shocking, right? When I got into the real biology of fat and it's, it's that fat isn't just fat. It's not what we all think of it as we think of it as blubber. It's unsightly. We need to get rid of it at all costs. It's a detriment to our health. And you know, it has such a negative reputation, but if you actually study fat, it's critical. It's not even just storing calories. It's doing so much more than just storing calories, right? It's secreting hormones that it primarily makes. It's the only source of some of these hormones. And it's just vital to our overall health. So, you know, in some ways I had a whole new respect for fat. Like, oh my goodness, how have I been treating my fat, right? Just the way we talk about how we treat our hearts or our lungs or, you know, um, how we work out. It was was kind of like I've been uh, abusing it because I've been like sometimes eating too much, too little, losing weight, going back and forth. And my fat's been there this whole time trying to stay steady and help me. Um, At the same time, I learned about a lot of wily tricks that fat has right and and i wrote about all of those all these different ways you can gain fat that no one ever talks about or knows about so for me it was just a personal mission and i used all of my scientific training right for for this mission to really uncover it and then and then write about it in, in a way that i hope is accessible to people right it's digestible it's not like a scientific text but it's told mm. through stories that people can get through yeah, I, I think the story element is uh, is really important. You do that really well in your book, actually, by looking at people like Randy and I think Kathy's one of them, and you know, and relating the science behind uh, their journeys. And and I agree with you. I think fat needs almost like a rebrand. Um, and I, I love talking about science and medicine through the lens of business sometimes because I actually also did a, a, a master's in uh, business and entrepreneurship during my medical degree that not a lot of people actually know about. I never really talk about it that much. And I think it's fascinating to have that lens of sales and marketing and entrepreneurship with science because I think we need to be able to, you know, uh, get used to those different tools, especially when it comes to communicating science to the wide audience, which you've done so well. And the other thing I wanted to say, actually, on, on the, the first bit of your book is you talk a little bit about your own story that I think a lot of people can relate to um, in, in the way of abstinence. And I think you said that you were age 12 when you went on your first diet. Is that right? 
Yeah, I am. I, I gain weight very easily. And um, I, I gained before then, but I think around puberty is when it really became more significant, right? It was more visible. And so, yeah, that was my first diet. And, you know, I yo-yoed right after that. I remember losing about 10 pounds. And, you know, I was never like grotesquely obese, but I always had like 15 pounds. And I think after kids and, and all that, then it was more like 30, right? It was more. Um, but yeah, around 10 pounds when I was 12. And it just set me on this path of like gaining, losing, gaining, losing. So I've been dieting for a really long time. And I think the older I got, the more some of those tricks didn't work anymore. So much business around, you know, like the, the diet industry, it's all about selling you a dogma, selling you a philosophy. And the louder it's gotten, the more that business has gotten, um, you know, bigger, there's loud voices coming at you and they, they make you feel stupid if you're not following this diet, right? Certainly you are doing something wrong. And um, it's just really not like that, right? It's very individual. And so, so it sends you on this confusing message of, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be doing that. And the whole time it's either working or it's not, or you're gaining. And so, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I own up and down a lot in, 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 and went on a number of different diets. My old tricks weren't working and it sent me to this like plateau where it just it felt like nothing was working. So that's how it got there. So yeah, you, you t- we talked a bit about rebranding fat. Um, why, why don't we talk about the different types of fat first, actually? Because I know I've got a few things that I definitely want to talk to you about, four things in particular. But uh, why don't we start off by talking about the different types of fat and how they relate to each other? Yeah, and, and this is an important one too, because you know there, there's different types of fat. They have different functions in your body. And, and I feel like we're just at the tip of really understanding fat. And the more research gets done on fat, the more we're going to learn about what, what it's actually doing. But, you know, there's that white fat, that white, uh, you know, fat that you're the kind you want to lose when you want to lose weight, right? It's right underneath your skin. It's in your buttock area, your legs, right? Maybe underneath your, you know, in your abdomen right there under your skin. But then there's also brown fat. And this is fascinating because brown fat is around your clavicle areas, around your spine, right in your heart area when you're young. And it actually burns calories to produce heat, right? So it's, it's heat generating material. And then there's beige fat that's been discovered more recently. And that's fat that can turn brown when you exercise. So you have a capacity to create more brown fat that would then burn calories. And then there's visceral fat as well. And that's the fat underneath the stomach wall. I think people are more aware of this now. That's the fat that tends to get very inflamed, correlated with diabetes and correlated with heart disease. Um, And so you can have fat, right? You can actually be a bit overweight and be healthy if your fat's in the right place. If it's not in your visceral area, if it's in your legs and your arms, you're better off than if it's underneath your stomach wall and your gut. And so there's the different types of fat um, and, you know, they, they do different things as well. So it's important to know about that. Yeah, the, the beige fat um, was something that I've only just come across recently and how that relates to brown fat. So that there is a way in which uh, you can change your lifestyle to generate more brown fat. Is that is that correct from from beige? That is, that is. So, so exercise is supposed to be something that turns that beige fat brown, right? Through that, through the enzymes in the, in the brown fat. And I know some people do this, actually, my husband started doing this after I read about it and, re- and wrote about it, is that um, exposure to cold, right, will activate brown fat as well. And I know we had a pool and he started swimming in, you know, in a cold pool every morning. He's always a thin guy, but he actually got really skinny doing this. And he was eating like really? a horse, right? So this yeah. works. If you can stand it, this can actually help you. I know when I've tried it, it made me hungry all day. And so uh, <laughs> it had a counter effect. And so I, I, I did. Plus, I hate cold water in the morning. What a terrible way <laughs> to wake up. <laughs> but it works. And so, yeah, you, you can't. And, I, you know, it's, it's really just early stages of all of that research. There might be more ways. I know with mice, they've tried injecting brown fat into white fat. That has also worked. Um, there's also, you know, very lots of interesting studies in mice. You know, has limited applicability to us sometimes. But um, yeah, the, the different types of fat and how you use it. And there's also something just about body mass. There's one um, article I read recently where your body wants to maintain a certain mass. So when you get to a certain, you know, amount of fat, it's trying to stay that way. And there's this one experiment where they put um, like a weight. They sew it into the abdomen of a mouse, and those mice lose weight faster, not just from carrying that around, but because their, their body thinks that they've got this mass and they want to get back to homeostasis and they want to get back to the oh original God. weight. So, and this is another important thing to know is once you have that amount of fat, you can lose it. You can, I, my book is not to discourage anybody, even though I write about all the different ways we get fat, 
it just takes longer, right? There's different tricks you have to use depending on what stage you're in, depending on how stubborn your fat is. We all have a different fat blueprint. That's how I, I, I write about it. And I have a course on that now. And you have to understand your own fat blueprint, right? The genetics that go into it, your hormone level, your age, right? Your gender plays in a lot as well. And once you understand that, you can get a sense of how stubborn your fat is, how tough of a fight it's going to be, and how hard you have to go at the dieting effort, right? There are some people that can, you know, all they have to do is cut out carbs, maybe exercise a bit, they can lose their weight. But then there's other people where we're now talking about intermittent fasting or full day fasting, right? And exercise as well, you know, down the road. Um, so know what you're in for, because I think that'll help people get on a diet and stay on a diet and not be frustrated that that diet's not working for me. Therefore, I'm going to stop. There's nothing I can do about this. There's absolutely something you can do about it. It might be a harder effort for some versus others. Yeah, I, th I think... And, and this is something that I think hopefully people will uh, gather after listening to this and also after reading the book that the predominant di dichotomous thinking in the fitness industry really does need to be recognized and adjusted to appreciate just how varied the mechanisms are behind weight gain and weight loss. We, we've, you know, been fed this dietary dogma of calories in, calories out. And I think what you've done quite nicely is discuss all the multiple ways in which that's just not true and how you can try and personalize it for for you as well and you you, you also have a, a a curious sort of um section on the health of sumo wrestlers that i found particularly interesting uh i had no idea that i mean i knew they ate a lot of calories like eight thousand calories but i didn't know they used to nap <laughs> after eating to try and increase weight gain but also um the types of fat that they have as a result of their intense exercise regime can, can you speak about that for a bit yeah and that gets into the different types of fat we have right mm -hmm. so sumo wrestlers we all know they're they're obese right they're massively obese um, but the thing is they, they exercise a lot too, right? They have six hours or so of intense exercise every day. And so um, there's a, a hormone that fat releases called adiponectin, right? And, and it's interesting. And fat is the primary um, producer of adiponectin. And what adiponectin does is it guides fat in your bloodstream, right, to the healthy deposits of fat. So it'll put it in your arms, it'll put it in your legs, your buttocks, right underneath your skin on your abdomen there. Um, it'll keep it away from your visceral area, right? So it's almost like it's telling fat where to go. It's like saying, fat, come to me, come to where you belong. And when we exercise, it's actually, it actually produces more adiponectin. Our fat cells will secrete more of it. So sumo wrestlers exercise for six hours a day. Um, and so they have high levels of adiponectin. And so what that does is it causes the fat to go into the healthier deposits of fat. So they have it on their legs or buttocks or arms, their, their belly. They don't have it in the visceral section. So their CT scans, you know, underneath the stomach wall, there's not a lot of fat. And so they're metabolically healthy, believe it or not, right? They don't have high levels of heart disease and diabetes, you know, things like that. But interestingly, when they retire, and they're no longer exercising all the time, um, they get metabolically unhealthy fast because they no longer have that adiponectin. They start to get you know, visceral fat and they just start to get unhealthy. So it's, it's very interesting. You can be fat and fit, right? I mean, it's best not to be overweight, but if you're going to have some extra pounds, as long as you have it in the right deposits of your fat, um, you can be you can be okay, right, uh, metabolically. And, uh, you know, the thing is, though, it's exercise. And it's not a light amount of exercise. It's, you know, like really about six, seven hours a week of exercise, right? Some aerobics, some intense weightlifting. So it's not an easy thing to do either, but it's possible if you're really struggling with those you know, extra 15 pounds or so. Mm, yeah. The vast majority of um, of listeners to this podcast, we have hundreds of thousands of listeners every week, uh, the, but the vast majority of them are female. So, uh, and, and this is something I certainly see clinically uh, but certainly I, I hear it from a lot more women and whether that's because w women uh, as in a sweeping generalization are a bit more conscious about the way they look or their weight in particular or or whether it's because some of the things that you discussed in your book I'm not too sure but is is fat more likely to be a problem for women <laughs> Your entire female audience is now screaming yes. <laughs> 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 um, 
Yeah. And no, I always noticed it too. And so I did a whole chapter in the book about male versus female and how Mm. females gain weight um, versus men. So women are always fatter, even from probably before birth, right? When they measure girl babies, you know, surprisingly, they're fatter than boy babies, almost like right after birth. So they, they pack weight on more. And there's all kinds of reasons um, thought to be about this. I mean, one is that there's something called nutrient partitioning, which is mm-hmm. kind of like a forced savings program, if you will. It's where, you know, if you eat a certain amount, say 100 calories, some of it will go into your fat almost no matter what, right? Your body partitions a certain amount into fat versus other tissues. Women partition a bit more into fat versus men. But then there's all kinds of other reasons. Some are obvious. I mean, one is that, you know, men have more muscle mass, more bone mass, more of those tissues that burn calories versus women. Um, You know, women also, you know, they compensate a lot more for for fat. So their bodies react differently as well. Um, When they when they exercise, they feel like, you know, good. They burn off five, six hundred calories or so. So a good bit of exercise. They actually produce more ghrelin from their stomach. And ghrelin is a hormone Mm. that causes hunger. So women are hungrier after exercise and they tend to compensate more when they study them and they let them go to a buffet, men and women, after that kind of exercise, women will put more on their plates, right? They'll want to eat for longer after exercising. So that's an important thing for women to know, um, you know, either exercise late at night and just go to bed <laughs> or really watch your eating after you exercise. Yeah. And obviously it's, it's the hormones, right? Testosterone is this fantastic fat burning hormone. Um, I know people who do hormone therapy, right? Some women who take some testosterone, they burn fat quickly. They can get through this. Um, it's not always advisable. You need to talk to your physician to understand the risk of that. Um, but also like, like transgender. So, so, uh, women going to men, right. Starting to take more testosterone blocking estrogen, they lose weight rapidly. Testosterone is a very good um, fat burner. And so that's an interesting one. And then, you know, also with age, you know, you think we lose testosterone and we lose estrogen with age and that, that factors in as well. And so there's, there's a whole, you know, (laughs) a whole number of reasons why, and even the fat distribution will change as well, like with women and men. So we have receptors on our fat for estrogen, testosterone, growth hormone. And as our hormones change with age, um, sort of the receptors, the uh, receptor distribution, right? And so you'll start to get fat mm-hmm. in other places that you didn't have before. But there's just a lot of, of differences between, you know, men and women in particular. So so women are somewhat designed to be a little bit heavier um, and they, they, gain, they actually utilize fat um, more. So after exercise, we talked about that just to, to follow up. They'll actually utilize their fat more. They'll burn more fat during exercise, but they'll pack mm-hmm. it on at two to three times the rate that men do as well. So although our bodies, you know, use fat, they'll burn it. They also really want to keep it and they want Nature wants to make sure you have it. So it's an extra battle that women have. Um, and it's due to hormones. It's due to the tissue distribution. It's due to part, uh, nutrient partitioning. It's due, due to our reaction, our body's reaction to losing weight where nature doesn't really want that to happen. Um, a number of reasons. I mean, one is that it's also a producer of estrogen, our fat. And so menopausal women, that's when you start to gain, you know, the fat becomes very stubborn around menopause. Mm. And one one hypothesis is that your body is now relying on your fat for estrogen when your ovaries slow down, when they stop producing so much of it. Um, And also leptin, right? Estrogen, leptin are very important for reproduction. If women go, you know, below a certain weight, they start, they stop menstruating, right? And there's these interesting studies about malnourishment in certain developing countries and um, the girls menstruate later or they don't menstruate regularly, right? So there's nutrition and fat, it's linked to reproduction. And so we have a different battle. And especially in the menopause time, right? That's when it's really tricky. That's when neural tricks stop working. And that's where you have to get a lot more clever about your fat. On the subject of gender reassignment, does that work the other way as well? So for men transitioning into women? Yes, it does. They'll gain weight, right? Because they'll have testosterone blockers now and they'll start taking more estrogen. And uh, I write about one in the book. It was very interesting because it not only did, um, I I interviewed some and like not only they gain weight, but they also get more emotional, right? They also get more self-critical. Like, so the behaviors are linked to our hormones as well. And so, um, it's an interesting one. And there's certain health, you know, of course, consequences related to that, but it's something to, to be very watchful of, you know, for transgender and, and for anybody. But the, the female 
gender is designed to have a bit more fat for a number of reasons. Um, and when we try to take it off, nature doesn't like it and it wants to compensate. It'll make you hungrier. It'll, you know, pack it on faster than it will. So for women, it's a longer haul. And I think that's one thing we can observe anecdotally. Um, and I know I've, I've worked with a number of weight trainers, of, you know, fit, um, weight loss coaches, and they always say this, like men can, can take this off really quick. Like within a month, they, they can be at their target weight. Whereas for women, it's longer. It's a more emotional journey. There's more tied emotionally to food than there is for men. Women also have um, more dichotomous thinking. So if I didn't, if I didn't you know, do perfectly today, I failed. And I might as well just go off my diet now. So there's a lot more emotional coaching for women in these weight loss programs. And so, so women, you know, to, to get through this really, one is know that it's not easy. It's actually really hard. So when people are telling you it's supposed to be easy, especially if you have these male weight loss coaches that I've had from time to time, they are not in your battle, right? They, they are not experiencing what you are. For, for women, depending on, you know, your age, your hormone, your, your dieting history, if you've yo-yo dieted a lot, this is going to be very difficult, right? Pat yourself on the back if you even lose half a pound a week, right? It can be that slow sometimes. And that's not failure, right? That's still a win. It's going to take you much longer and you'll, you can't go off. You can't have as many cheat moments as other people can. So even just going off one day a week, right, can, can really slow down weight loss and even stop it. So know where you are on the spectrum of weight loss, right? What is your hardship going to be? Um, and I actually have a course now that people can download where I try to help people diagnose, right? How hard is your fat going to be to lose? And then once you know what you're in for, knowledge is really power. Really arm yourself, right, with, with, um, with the knowledge about fat um, and the knowledge of what you're you know, headed for. Prepping yourself will help you stay on it and help you through the endurance. And then figure out like what times you need to fast. I find fasting is really good for very stubborn fat if you're really having trouble with it. And it doesn't have to be torturous. It doesn't have to be a three-day fast. It can be an intermittent fast, right? Where for part of the day, you stop eating, right? I know for me, what has worked, um, and you have to experiment with this, is stopping eating after about three o'clock, right? So it's like a 16 to 18-hour fasting day. Yes, it's hard to get through night. <laughs> yes, it is. But what I do also learn is that your diet has to fit your personality. And so there's some diets that are very restrictive. You know, right? there's like, I don't know what, 20 ingredients you can ever eat in your life. It takes a lot of food prep time. You always have to be ready with the special food, right? And they can work. Those diets can work. For me, it's not my personality. It's not my lifestyle. So you have to find a diet that works for your lifestyle because you'll be on this for a long time if you have stubborn fat. This could take a year, right? And longer. Um, and once you find it, you have to stay on. So you have to, you have to like it enough. What I find with intermittent fasting is that I have more food latitude in the times I do eat, right? So if there's something I'm really wanting, right? If I really wanted a piece of chocolate or you know half a cookie, whatever it is, I can have it and the world doesn't end. I still lose weight as long as I don't eat at night. So for my personality, right, for my level of stubborn fat, that was just something that worked really well. Um, and, you know, your fat is looking for ways to come back. And so, you know, somewhere in here, we should probably also talk about the way fat comes back because that's that's really critical because yeah. it also highlights the fact that you, you can't stop dieting necessarily. You might have to stay on this a really long time, forever possibly. And I, I think that's why, like, finding a sustainable option in which you can eat that you enjoy and is convenient and is appropriate to your lifestyle is very, very important. But I, I think just pausing there a moment, A, I think, it's fantastic we're talking about the emotional aspect of eating and why that might be more important uh, for, for women as well. The other element is I think a lot of people listening to this will just think, well, this is super unfair, right? So you can't, uh, if I'm female, I've got my nutrient partitioning is different. My response to uh, exercise or my, my ghrelin response to exercise, I'm going to be hungry after exercise is different. The distribution of my fat is different. Uh, you, all these things appear to be conspiring against you uh, and and basically are geared towards you making you regain the fat. But the, the way I, I like to talk about it, one-on-one -on -one anyway, it's harder to do on a, on a bigger platform, I guess, but it's a biological necess necessity for you to have fat because we use fat for energy for breast milk production. I say we, not me, um, but breast milk uh, production as well as a whole bunch of other important 
evolutionary biological mechanisms, right? So, so maybe reassessing why you put on fat can make us a little bit more um, accepting of the fact that fat isn't something that we should be shamed of. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. You- Everyone needs a healthy level of fat. So sort of the conversation needs to shift from get rid of fat at all costs, fat is bad, to we need to maintain a healthy level of fat and healthy fat, right? A healthy distribution. So you want fat in healthy deposits and you want a, a nice normal amount of it. That doesn't mean obesity is okay either because that has a whole bunch of other health consequences. So actually too little fat or too much fat is not healthy. So when people get too little fat, there's a lot linked to your fat, right? So like brain size shrinks, like when they look at people with anorexia, right? Or people who have defective fat, you can actually have genetically defective fat that is not producing all the hormones you need, right? And, and so for, for those, those people, there's a number of problems. One is they don't mature. So the very underweight, right, women, they, they don't menstruate, they, they can't have children. Um, and, and I know I talked to some um, reproductive specialists, and they have to kind of coach these women to, to start gaining weight. It's like ballerinas, gymnasts, that they, they're all muscle, no fat, which is something that like bodybuilding and some of these weight loss right, companies, they put up as, as the holy grail, like this is what you should look like, but it's not. Right. You need to have like 22 percent fat or so. Um, if it gets under like 17, 18 percent for women, a lot of functions will stop. And there's a lot of other things linked to, to healthy fat. So, so another hormone that's really important that fat produces is leptin, and it's a primary producer of leptin. And leptin is linked to so many critical bodily functions, right? So even your immune system is linked to your fat. So people with anorexia, um, if they start losing too much fat, their, their wound healing slows down, right? Thyroid productivity slows down. So your, your ability to generate heat, right, and maintain homeostasis slows down bones get thinner, right? This is really important for teenage girls. If, if they start losing too much weight, they don't, they don't develop the same bone mass. And it's critical in that time of life because you, you can't go back. There's like a certain bone mass you start with um, and a time of life that you build it up. So, so that healthy weight, healthy level of fat is really important. And what we know biochemically is that fat and bone kind of talk to each other. They both release hormones, Right. So fat's releasing a hormone telling bone to get bigger. Bone actually, you know, releases some things, um, some hormones that like produce insulin that help fat get a little bigger. They depend on each other. And so it's really fascinating. And, um, you know, and like I said, even like for anorexics, um, their brains start actually shriveling. Right. They start shrinking. The volume goes down. So there's so many bodily functions linked to your fat. Think of it of how do I have healthy fat, a healthy level of fat and I keep fat itself healthy. So there's all these campaigns for keep your lungs health, uh, healthy, you know, a healthy heart, you know how important it is. We actually need the campaign for a healthy fat because it is that important of an organ. It's not just a tissue, it's not just blubber. So that will help you appreciate it, right? And also appreciate for women, although we gain fat more readily, we tend to be healthier, right? So, so one thing is, is that our bodies will clear nutrients out of our blood. We'll, we'll partition, we'll pack it away, we'll put it into our fat much more fast and quickly than a man will. For men, they kind of float around a little bit longer a lot of the times, but it's a reason that men are more prone to heart disease, right? They're more prone to some of these other problems. Some of those fats and nutrients, instead of depositing the fat, they're depositing in liver and heart and other places they shouldn't be because their bodies are less efficient at putting those nutrients into fat where it actually belongs for storage. So although you might have an extra five, 10 pounds compared to, you know, what you think you should have or compared to a man, you're probably a little bit healthier for it, right? So, so there's, there's reasons for all of this. And in nature's quite efficient. I find that the nature seems to know what it wants to do and what's important for it to produce. So there's benefits. Um, at the same time, you know, especially during as we get to menopause, when we get to menopause, you really have to watch it because now some of these functions are starting to break down. The fat's getting a bit more out of control. You have to work harder at it. So respect your fat, but at the same time, know what fat's tricks are and your body's mechanisms for keeping it on you and even making you gain. And then really work hard. Use endurance, right? Find a diet you like and can stay on. And don't get overly emotional about this, right? This is not a sign of failure if you're having trouble losing weight. It's not even a sign of failure if you go off your diet and you have a sweet every now and then. It is completely normal and human. You have to accept that and accept that it's going to take perhaps longer to lose that weight. So if we stay rational about it, we stay factual about it. Um, and, and in a way, you can use your emotions, right, to, to lose weight. I read about my own story in the last chapter. And I remember after reading all of this, 
um, I just felt mad, right? I felt really angry. Maybe this is an emotion some of your, your viewers have. Is like, But it gave me a certain kind of vengeance of I'm going to get this. Now that I know what you're about, Fat, I know what to do and I'm going to get this. And it fueled me for, I don't know, six months or so where I was like, no, I, I'm going to win. I'm going to win at this. <laughs> so use your emotions in that way, right? Not just to sabotage yourself, right? And, and uh, flog yourself, but use it, you know, against this effort. Yeah, convert that energy into something positive that's going to spur you forward. I, I love that. Uh, onto something that perhaps is less um, uh, within our realm of control uh, is this concept of uh, viral obesity or viruses that can induce obesity, which I found fascinating. And again, something I don't think I would have believed 10 years ago, but the curious story of Dr. Nikhil uh, Dananda, who gave up his practice in India, even though he had like three clinics and then he like took a 90% pay cut to come and study in America. Like it sounds amazing, but what, why don't we talk about this concept of viruses potentially inducing obesity? It, it sounds bonkers. Yeah, it, it, it is. So it's like fat can actually be contagious, believe it or not. Your fatness or like that, how easy you gain weight can be contagious. So there's certain viruses that they're linked to fatness and, and it's actually not so no novel because I think, um, you know, in, in the past, people knew that canine distemper virus caused fatness in mice, right? Researchers knew that. They knew that RAS associated virus caused fatness in chickens. So like, it's not that much of a leap then to think, well, these viruses can cause fatness in humans. And, and sure enough, um, Nikhil Durandra was studying this in India and he noticed this SMAM1 virus that, it, you know, it was causing fatness in chickens and he wondered if it could cause fatness in humans. And you know, he finally makes his way to the US because he really wants to make this his career, right, um, to, to study this. And he couldn't import that virus SMAM1 because of, of rules and regulations, but he did find a virus in the US, AD36 that was actually linked to fatness in people. So people who have had 8036 infection, um, they tend to be fatter, right? So they have a higher obesity rate. Um, like I think it's like 20 to 30% uh, higher probability of being obese than people who have not ever had the virus. And this virus, interestingly, it kind of works like glucose, right? It helps, you, oh, sorry, like insulin, I meant to say. So it helps you absorb more glucose it, it, it allows your body to create more fat molecules and ultimately more fat cells. And last I talked to uh, Dr. Durander, he was actually doing some research to see if this could be, you know, kind of substitute for insulin because it's working very much the same, which is helping you internalize oh, glucose, man. create more fat molecules. And, and you know, but it, it, like, like we just talked about for women, it's helping you yeah. take nutrients out of your blood and putting it into your fat. So you just have to be more careful if you've had this. And they did some from very big studies. I think it was in the military, actually, where they, they looked at everyone's blood types and, and uh, uh, genotypes, rather, and, and their fatness level. And sure enough, people who tested positive for AD36 had a higher preponderance of being fat. So there's all kinds of ways we can get fat. And that this is the other part I write about because they're little known. And I think with my own struggle, if I couldn't figure out why you know I, I gained weight so much easier than people around me. That's one possibility, right? And it's not even that that slim of a possibility. It turns out that that prevalence is a bit higher than we thought. There's bacteria in your gut as well, you know, as viruses that might be circulating. And depending on the bacterial distribution in your GI tract, you could be extracting more calories out of your food versus less, right? And there's ways to shape that bact uh, that bacteria distribution, but you have to eat, you know, the right way. But, you know, there's also genetics is really important, um, you know, gender, like we talked about, and age, right? All of those really factor into how easy is it for you to get fat. And I find awareness of them, for one, um, it's good, especially if you're struggling, because the dogma in the diet world is just that you're eating too much. That's all. Just cut out carbs. That's all you have to do. Mm -hmm. or, or go paleo. <laughs> those things can help for sure, right? But but if you're still struggling or those those diets aren't working for you in your lifestyle, you now need to get more clever. You need to know more. It is an eye-opening to learn about all the different ways we can get fat. And even that virus, even if you've had that virus, it doesn't mean you have to be fat. And I do write about, you know, Randy in the book. Um, who's someone who had the virus, couldn't understand why he had such a battle with weight. He goes into this experimental program with Nikhil Durander and finally figures out he's positive for this virus. And he learns all about this virus. And he, for him, it's eye-opening. He's, he's realized why he's had this problem with weight his whole life. And he uses knowledge as power, right? So now he's going to, he's on a very strict diet. He's very thin now, right? Um, 
He, he runs every day. He's very careful about what he eats. And he says that I'm not part of the eating world. So he separates. There's the eating world. People can eat whatever they want when they want. And there's people who can't. And he's part of these people who can't. So when he goes on a picnic with his family, they'll be eating pizza and hot dogs. He'll bring his boiled egg and his salad. He knows what his battle is. He knows what his fat blueprint is. And he knows how to, how to eat around it and maintain you know, a slender body type now, but it's, mm. it's work and it's, it's knowing, right. What, what your body's about. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, for a lot of people that might sound like super restrictive, but I think, uh, certainly in today's day and age, when we live in an environment where we are surrounded by calorie rich, nutrient poor options, it's really important to know exactly how your body's going to react to that. And in the case of Randy, you know, someone who has this virus, it's really important to, to be uh, that bit stricter with himself to prevent chronic disease in the future. Balancing, obviously, you know, the negative consequences of uh, too much um, preponderance uh, psychologically on, on healthy eating and developing an unhealthy relationship with it. The um, AD36 being an adenovirus, I, I don't know if we can test for that in the UK at least, but I, I think... The fact that uh, the mechanisms that you uh, describe in the book as increasing glucose uptake and the creation of fat by fatty acids is very interesting as it mimics some, some of the functions of insulin as well. And I wonder if Dr. Nickel was looking at it as a replacement for insulin. Is that, is that something he mentioned? He was, he was. In my last talk with him, he was working, you know, looking for partnerships to develop that to see if it could be. So it'd be an odd kind of contract. I guess you would inject AD36, right? Knowing that yeah. it's working like this. In a way, it's gene therapy, right? It's, it's yeah. yeah putting these genes in but then do you need less insulin and I, I don't know if he got the funding he was looking for but it was an area of interest and you know a very interesting one um <laughs> so you know we'll see but we're, we're a composite of, of all kinds of things we're not just human when you get down to it right we're a composite yeah. of bacteria and viruses some human cells as well and so yeah. we're this big walking entity and um yeah it, it's an interesting thought and i know with leptin like we talked about leptin and there's some people um, who are deficient in leptin. So leptin, um, it's a, another hormone your fat secretes and it helps you feel satiated, right? And so when we have healthy levels of fat, we're overall pretty satiated. Of course, we get hungry at mealtime and all that, but, but you're overall, you're not constantly seeking food because you have high levels of leptin because you have a normal fat layer. Once people start to lose a lot of weight, they also have lower leptin levels. And once you get to lower leptin levels, um, you actually start feeling a lot more hungry, right? And it's a constant in your background. So people who've lost 10% of their weight or so, they're constantly looking for food, right? And they're, they're always hungry. And when they, they study them, um, they put more, more food on their plates and they feel hungrier after they've just eaten. And in fact, the parts of their brain that, that have to do with satiation are very low when they do fMRI images on them. And parts of the brain that have to do with willpower and self-control are diminished, Right. So it's a very interesting thing. And this is part of your body's coordinated response to want to put fat back on. So it's not just hormones. It's not just ghrelin, like we talked about women, but for everybody, male, female, any age, as you start to lose weight, your body goes through this effort to regain it. And one is your, your appetite. But secondly, it also controls your muscles, right? And how, how your metabolism is and even controls thyroid. So you also will burn fewer calories as you start to lose weight. 22% fewer calories than someone who didn't have to lose weight. So if someone is 150 naturally, never had to lose weight to get there, someone was 175, they lost you know, 25 pounds to get to 150, the person who had to lose weight to get to 150 pounds needs 22% fewer calories than the person who's 150 pounds naturally, right? Mm -hmm. So this tells you why it's important to find that diet you really like, because you might be on it for a very long time. Yeah. That result, right, it, it's not necessarily temporary, right, that, that caloric penalty you get for losing weight. It's been studied for six years. It doesn't go away for everybody in that six-year time frame. So for some people, they might be able to get back and eat a little bit more e equally to the person who's naturally 150 pounds. Some people, they'll always have to eat 22% less, right? So again, mm -hmm. find a diet that works for your lifestyle that you like. You might have to be on this forever. And ultimately what's really important is deciding what you want, right? It's like you have to really want to be healthy and thin, you know, in shape. If you don't want it and you're going to be flippant about it, you're going to snack and you're going to eat all over the place and then you won't, you won't achieve it. And then all you're doing is kind of flogging yourself, feeling like a failure, right? And it's just more debilitating towards, towards your willpower. 
So if you want it, you can get it, but know that there's there's work that has to be done, just like, you know, a job, right, or making money or any other achievement in your life. And you'll have to stay on that day to day, right, throughout your life. But it's all possible, even though we talk about viruses and all these problems and how easy it is to gain weight. Every one of these has a solution. Yeah. On the subject of uh, microbes, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the differences in, in the microbiota there and the impact on fat uh, ingestion, as well as how that's partitioned. Um, there was a an elegant study, I believe, from Washington University, where they looked at germ-free mice and then mice that had bacteria. And they found this this sort of I think it's kind of counterintuitive. I, whenever I come across this study, it always makes me rethink my knowledge of, of the microbiota and how uh, the bacteria and mice were causing fat storage. Uh, and um, or maybe I am probably bastardizing it all. So maybe you could describe exactly what happened in this in this study and uh, and what what we could take away from how bacteria cause fat storage and how we partition it. Yeah, it's interesting. So they had germ-free mice, right? So they had some Mm. mice grow up in this um, bacteria-free environment, so a very sterile environment. So they didn't really have a lot of bacteria in their gut. And they compare that to the the mice that do, right? They grow up in a normal environment and they have bacteria. But the the germ-free mice, they don't absorb as many calories out of their gut. So, So the bacteria in our gut and our intestines is actually helping us break down foods and absorb foods. Right, and then convert those to fat ultimately or to whatever our body needs. And so germ-free, they could eat more and they were thinner, and yet they had a lower metabolism. Whereas the the, the mice that uh, you know were, were in the normal typical environment, they had to eat 30% less to be at that same weight. Um, and actually, they weren't even at the same weight. They ate 30% less, but they were 50% uh, had to have 50% more fat. So the bacteria had such an effect, it actually helps us break down our food and digest it. It helps us break down polysaccharides and turn it into to glucose, basically. Um, and they did even have a higher metabolism, the ones that, that grow up in the normal kind of um, bacteria environment that we, all, that we all have. And so it's doing a lot. And there's different schools of bacteria. So, so some bacteria actually does this much more efficiently. It breaks down starches and turns it into glucose. And, and there's others that let more pass as waste. And one thing learned is that the more kind of fibrous food we eat, we tilt towards a bacteria, uh, bacteria distribution that actually lets more pass. So we say in a way, fat loss begets fat loss because if you're eating more fibrous foods like lettuce and salads and fruits, for one, you're getting fewer calories and more water, right? So it's more filling, but you're getting less fewer calories. Um, you know, at the same time, you're tilting your microbiome to be one that's allowing more of that to pass and absorb less calories from your food. So you're, you're getting less calories and you're absorbing even fewer calories of that meal. Whereas people who eat more starchy foods, right, um, potato chips, cookies, things like that, their microbiome tilts towards one that actually extracts um, calories much more readily out of the food. So that bowl of Cheerios that you're getting that says 100 calories, like a bowl of cereal, you know, some people are going to get 120 calories out of that. Some people are going to get 80. It depends on what your your distribution looks like. And so one way to shape that is to eat, you know, a lot more kind of natural fibrous um, foods, right? Leafy vegetables, things like that, that'll tilt that microbiome, help you tilt towards one that is extracting less calories out of your food. Yeah. I, I think one of the takeaways that I want to dissuade people from thinking because that was certainly my initial takeaway is oh uh if you have microbes in your gut that's bad because that's extracting more of the calories and that's putting fat on whereas we just need to get rid of the calories so it all passes out of you that's not the thinking that you want to have because you need to have the microbes in order to extract the nutrients that you need to support your body's uh uh normal processes but uh, what distribution of bacteria and the distribution of the populations of different microbes is super, super important. So one that is more in favor of uh, bacteroides versus firmicutes, and you can adjust that using the different patterns of, of eating. Um, and I guess um, the, the last factor that, I mean, there are a number of different uh, topics that you discussed, but one of the things that interested me was uh, the genetic component. Um, and I, I you use some examples of um, indigenous Americans, but I, I believe there are a number of different stories of indigenous populations from across the world, whether you're looking at rural India or whether you're looking at aboriginals in Australia, where those native populations come into contact with industrialized food and have a unique issue 
with obesity, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, amongst a whole bunch of other suite of metabolic problems. Um, what is going on there? And, and what do we know about genetics and, and how that uh, changes our approach to putting on weight and, and specifically fat? That's a good one. I think that's going to be a big area of discovery, you know, in the next few decades. But, you know, there's there's genotypes, right? So depending on your ancestry and the behaviors of your ancestry, we've all inherited a certain genotype of what worked for that line of humans. And so some of the, you know, nomadic um, humans, um, the fasting humans, ones that experience famine, right, throughout history, they've developed this, this genotype that's called the thrifty genotype. Their bodies are very good at extracting calories, at, at hoarding calories into fat tissue, they, they produce fat quite readily. And it's it's to help them get through periods of famine. So like I said, nature, you know, it's very careful and knows how to preserve itself and what it needs for propagation, right, of the different species. And so this is what really helped them get through periods of famine throughout history. It's a, their thrifty genotype that allowed them to take in, you know, make perhaps minimal amounts of food, use some, but save a lot for fat for, for the future when it was needed. And so what's interesting is when those societies come into contact with like fast, easy calories, they gain a lot of weight. And then the, the population I wrote about were, were the Pima Indians um, that came through America, right? They were somewhat nomadic. They, they settled in Arizona and they settled in Mexico. And when they have their own lifestyle, which was kind of farming and hunting and active and very natural foods, they, they did okay. They weren't obese. But then when Caucasians started moving into the area at the turn of the century, you know, 1900 or so, they got other foods, right? They got flour, they got bacon, and then there was started to be government sustenance programs where they got even more of these types of foods, right? These industrialized foods, and, and they got obese quickly. And it became an area of study for the government of what is going on here. And the theory they came to is that, you know, there's certain groups of people that have this very thrifty genotype. They're kind of designed, right, to have more fat. And although I, you know, I, I looked at the Pimas, I, I think that's probably all over the place. And I know people talk about the, the girth of America all the time. And, you know, we have a, a whole polyglot of different cultures here, right? People with different ancestry who come here. And food here, it, it's, you know, readily available. It's highly processed sometimes, very industrialized. And so certain populations can get away with this. Like the Pima Indians, um, when they compared them to the Caucasians who were living right next to them, the Caucasians weren't getting really fat off this food. Only the Pima Indians were. So it's another thing to be conscious of and, you know, another thing to to not measure yourself against someone else. And I think that's the big takeaway from, from the book, too, is that we're all really individual, right? So depending on your ancestry, your genetics, right, your, again, your gender, um, how much you've yo-yo dieted, because that will affect how much you can eat also, right? You can't compare yourself to, well, my friends eat this way. I should be able to eat this way. There's no should, right? In dieting, there's no, like, I should be able to have this. I should not have to exercise this much, right? You know, there's no shoulds. It's just what is, you know, what is that mathematical equation you're working with and how do you deal with it, that mathematical function? And so, you know, I think the less we start to think of what, like, what should we be able to expect, right? Not everyone can expect the same thing. And that's why it's important to prep yourself with what is your fat blueprint? What can you expect for yourself, right? Not for your neighbor, your friend or family member. And then use that to arm yourself to prepare for what that journey is going to look like. And again, you have to want that, right? So if you don't really care about, you know, you have like an extra 50 pounds and you don't care, you're probably not going to do well on this journey, right? You have to really want that thing because it will be hard work. And you can't compare yourself to everyone else. It's your personal journey that you have to figure out. And I'm hoping all the contents in the book, the contents in the course, they help people figure that out for themselves and help them monitor their own kind of weight loss and tailor it to themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've discussed like four main things today, you know, gender, genes, bugs, viruses. These are all reasons why you can't have that black and white thinking about uh, diet and, and weight and, and its effect on fat. Um, my last question for you is, uh, I guess, if you're writing the, the book or you're writing another book in like five years time, what are the things that you think we should be watching out for? What are the things on the horizon of of the science of fat uh, that could come to fruition that you're, you're particularly interested in or excited about? 
Yeah, I think it's more about learning what's in our food, believe it or not. Like, I don't know that we know what we're eating anymore, right? So when you look at ingredients, um, we have like highly processed food, highly industrialized farming techniques now, right? So so what are you really eating? That's really important because I don't think we're eating what we think we're eating. <laughs> I know when I, I do business travel and I have to eat out of an airport, I, I easily gain a half a pound or a pound right from that. And I thought I was just having a chicken sandwich, which normally in my own household would not cause me to gain half a pound. So, so what is it that we're eating is going to be really important. How are these industrialized foods being processed truly? And, and what can we do to have kind of sustainable corporate, you know, food supply and at the same time have people be healthy? Educating yourself is going to be really important because corporate interests aren't always aligned, right, with your personal health needs. And so you have to know what you're putting into your body. Another area of interest I've, I've um, developed is just the emotions around eating, right? And so I've talked about it a little bit in this talk, but, you know, you have to want something and what causes somebody to want something. And then when they go down that journey to get that something, what causes them to lose that journey and give up, right? So our lives are very stressful. Um, and it's, it's seen like throughout history that when there's stressful times like the pandemic or a depression or a recession, people tend to gain weight. It's like they lose willpower and, and candy sales go up, believe it or not. And I think we saw that with pandemic, right? The alcohol mm. sales went up, people gained yeah. weight and, and no one's immune to that really. And, and so what is it about how we think about things that makes us feel sorry for ourselves, right? Or makes us feel like we can't cope anymore and therefore I'm gonna give up and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna relax. And what is it about that food that makes it feel like that was worth it, right? So there's a whole psychology around why we eat, um, why we lose endurance um, and what, what will help us stay on a journey. And so this has been an area of fascination of mine and I'm, I'm starting to read more about it and research this a bit more because at the end there's always forces that can cause you to eat. Our bodies are designed to eat. You know, our bodies are designed to put on fat, you know, so for our own safety and corporations are designed to sell you things and make money. Right. So, so in the end, um, we're always going to have an onslaught of forces that, that are going to make us fatter in this case. And, and so how do you navigate that, strengthen yourself, empower yourself and stay on the journey to want to be fit and be able to stay fit, to stay on that regimen that you've picked for yourself. And, that way, no matter what other onslaught comes on, what other pandemic, what other recession, whatever, you're you're armed, you know, to to get through that, right? Like a big, you know, ship sailing through the ocean. No matter what wave hits you, you can handle it because there'll be no shortage in the future of all those those different factors as well that come into to make you want to eat or want to gain weight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think balancing those those interests that you have, as well as the knowledge of what corporate interests are, as well, uh, I, I think is going to be key to to people's health journeys. And uh, and your work is uh, fantastic. I, I love the book, and uh, it certainly uh, made me pause uh, a lot and and want to do a bit more research in certain areas. So so thank you very much. And I think this is going to be really really useful for tons of people out there. Right. Thank you. It's great to be here. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sylvia Tara. She is brilliant and her book is fantastic. My tips for being smart about solutions for fat loss. The first of all, I think it's really important to get to the crux of the emotional component here because weight is a very emotive subject. The reason why is because society has deemed that we should look and feel a certain way. We should aspire to look like the magazines that adorn all of our grocery supermarket shelves etc etc or what you see on your social media feed that is constantly telling you that you're not good enough and i think you have to figure out what your motivations are beyond aesthetics and beyond what society is telling you i want you to feel your best and you should find that reason as to why you need to lose weight whether it's because you feel that you should or whether it's because you want to and also becoming more comfortable in your skin and having that pragmatic conversation with yourself, I think is always the first starting point. When it comes to being more metabolically healthy, I think there's four things that I want to talk about. I could talk you know, for a whole podcast episode about it. And I think I will at some point, I'll label it metabolic flexibility. And I can talk about all the different mechanisms behind why you want to try and achieve that and why it's more important, particularly as we live in a world, like I said on the podcast, that is dominated by nutrient-poor calorie rich options exercise is one of the first things 
And finding an exercise strategy that you can do consistently where you post no zero weeks every week. And when I say zero week, that's where you don't post a week where you don't do some form of movement. It could be dancing. And I'm being serious. Dancing has actually been shown in a few studies to actually improve people's uh, subjective levels of happiness as well as uh, energy uh, expenditure as well. So it can be something like dancing first thing in the morning if you can find a quiet spot and just put your earphones in. It could be uh, running in the morning, which is something I love to do. I do that at least once a week. It could be HIIT training. It could be Pilates. It could be simple walking. Find your movement strategy. The reason why exercise is so important from the perspective of fat metabolism is uh, adiponectin amongst other things. So adiponectin is that hormone that we talked about earlier that is very, very important when it comes to fat metabolism. And uh, and also uh, uh, exercise releases a hormone called irisin, which can convert beige into brown fat, which is more metabolically active. And the reason why brown fat is called brown fat is because of its high density of mitochondria. Mitochondria are the uh, energy uh, producing cells that we we find in our in our cells that actually comes from bacteria, so it's actually foreign DNA to ours. Um, it's part of our evolutionary history. I'll talk about that in another podcast. It's probably not uh, uh, appropriate the outro for a podcast, um, but certainly uh, brown adipose tissue that you can increase through a number of different things, including cold water therapy, but also. Um, uh, prolonged exercise as well. So uh, that endurance exercise, those are two things that uh, have been shown to improve that. But any form of exercise, I think, is the number one strategy. Um, with specific regard to brown fat, I'll talk about that now, as I mentioned it. So yeah, the, the fashionable thing is cold water therapy right now. A lot of people can't deal with that. Um, I'm myself included. I don't uh, do it near enough as I, I feel like I would like to because a, I live in the middle of London, so I don't have like a bath that I could just fill up with ice and jump into. Uh, and B, I, I just don't like it. Um, but the, the other things that you can do to improve brown fat is uh, prolonged endurance exercise. So there was an interesting study uh, looking at uh, over the age of 55 year olds, I believe, just from memory, where uh, they measured the amount of brown fat uh, in these uh, athletes of um, cyclists. And they found these guys who would cycle, uh, both men and women, I believe, uh, who would cycle for a few hours every week and long distances, even if it was once or twice a, a week, they had high levels of brown fat, um, which is uh, very, very uh, good for us. Um, and so I, I think that's certainly something to, to look into if you if you can. Um, fasting. Fasting is really interesting. So apart from the impacts on uh, glucose uptake uh, and sensitivity to insulin, um, so fasting increases your sensitivity to insulin. That's been demonstrated in animal models as well as some human trials. We've done a podcast with Walter Longo about this. We're going to be doing some more podcasts on the same subject. But it also has an impact on growth hormone. So fasting, intermittent uh, fasting, so the, the popular method of fasting right now, which is where you fast for around 12 to 16 hours in every 24-hour period, uh, does appear to increase growth hormone levels, which has a beneficial effect on fat uh, and re reduces um, the more metabolically active form of fat, uh, which is uh, the, the white fat that you don't want to have, uh, in particular visceral fat as well. Um, intermittent fasting as a term, as you'll re remember, if you were listening to the podcast with Walter Longo, is a very inaccurate term, but it's still something that I, I think um, uh, is garnered a lot of popularity so most people understand it to mean 12 to 16 hours and that's something that uh you i i would i would recommend uh people people look into the other strategy that is super important is actually sleep it doesn't involve any movement or any form of uh effort i guess uh other than being a little bit stricter with yourself particularly in the evenings with regard to electronics with regard to any stimulating activities that you might be doing like uh it, it could be um uh, mobile phone use electronics are the big one uh but even exercise too late in the evening as well can disrupt your sleep and eating too late in the evening can disrupt your sleep as well so finding a strategy that increases your sleeping window is fantastic from a fat metabolism point of view a number of studies demonstrate this as well so if you can concentrate and sleep that'd be brilliant and then i know this is the doctor's kitchen podcast and we talk about food all the time uh, i'm not going to talk about specific macronutrient ratios or anything like that in in this outro but finding an eating strategy that works for you 
that is sustainable in the long term is perhaps one of the most important things you you can do. And a diet, and when I say diet, I mean that to mean an eating strategy that is inherently short term, i.e. you do it for two or three or four months, that is not going to work in the long run. It is not going to work. It might allow you to lose weight in the short term period and you might feel great. You might be able to go on your holiday afterwards and you'll feel good about it. It won't work in the long term. It has to be something that you can consistently do. So if you find yourself eating something and it's bland, you don't like it, you feel like this is a massive effort, I would really encourage you to think about a strategy or an eat a way of eating that is a lot more sustainable. You have to enjoy your food. And hopefully the Doctor's Kitchen recipes, whether it's cookbooks, whether it's stuff you see on social media, whether it's stuff you see on the website, whether it's stuff you see on the uh, app that should be coming out at some point in the future, hopefully you'll be able to find some inspiration there and some recipes that you will enjoy and you'll absolutely love and you'll cook time and time again with a few tweaks that suit your taste buds and your uh, environment to make it convenient for you that is a long outro i'm going to leave it as there we're going to be talking about this topic a lot more in the future and i would love your thoughts uh, send them to the newsletter uh, questionnaire i look through all of them and i will try to respond to as many as i can thank you very much and i will see you here next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.